Dueling Genre Productions presents Immunities, an audio drama. What a beautiful night. Yes, it is. Did you see that? See what? A light. It's gone now. Are you okay? I'm feeling a little drowsy. I better sit down. Here, let me help you. About five months ago, there was something in the night sky. Something happened to the people who saw it. And if someone looked them in the eyes, it would happen to them too. How are you feeling? I am feeling much better. I thank you for asking. And you yourself, how are you feeling? Oh, I'm fine. Or, uh, I was fine. I feel a little unsteady now. I suggest having a rest. It did me a world of good. They looked at their families, and then they searched out friends, strangers, everybody. Some people didn't change. We think maybe one person out of 2,000. So, for five months, you've just been hanging out? Shelly, I don't know what this is. I've never seen anyone just become normal again. I have to be careful. You might just change back into one of them. You might be one of them now. (sighs) This is too complicated. I'm too tired to deal with it. And I'm still half expecting you to tell me it's all just a story. It isn't. I just know I have to close my eyes now. Wait, Shelly? No. Shelly? 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 Don't worry. Shelly? Just for a second. Shelly! Immunities, an audio drama about almost everyone being against you. Available from DuelingGenre.com and your podcatcher of choice starting in July. Dueling Genre Welcome to Lord of the Rings Minute, the daily podcast where we analyze the movie The Two Towers, one desperate Smeagol-filled minute at a time. Oh, no. (laughs) I'm Norman Mitchell. I'm Cassandra Fredrickson. And joining us again today is Bob Kester from Immunities and Tasha Robinson from the Next Picture Show podcast. Thanks for joining us, guys. Hello, guys. Today we're talking about Minute 67, which starts with Frodo tugging Sam up out of the ground. And ends with Sam shouting at Gollum, why haven't you spoken of this before? <laughs> it's very incredulous. I would say he's angry. But... Angry? Angry's good, yeah. <laughs> he's upset. Ang- incredulous? Yeah. Okay, so I actually made a, uh, a continuity error of my own. I was pointing out the, the continuity error with Sam being buried in when we were talking yesterday. But it actually occurs in this minute. Yeah, right at the beginning, Frodo starts to pull Sam up. You see his chest, like, come unburied. And then it cuts to a further away shot of Frodo stepping away from Sam, and Sam is still buried. <laughs> and getting up himself. I love that it, it um, it to me, it, it, it reads like Frodo tries to pull Sam up, gives up, and then just lets Sam crawl out. <laughs> <laughs> Falling deeper into the quick Sam. Yeah. Yeah. It's just... Frodo's just like, oh, wait, no, that door's closing. I need to just go through there. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> How I, else am I going to get in there? I don't know what 
Frodo's plan is. <laughs> he's winging it. I mean, I, yeah, it looks like he's going to run forward, and I mean, he, he has already proved definitively that hobbits cannot be seen, <laughs> even yeah. even when the Easterlings are right in front of them. So he's like, ah, I'll just run up behind him. And, and I think about it. There's lots of stories where you know the hero gets captured by the bad guy, and the bad guy takes him to his base, and then the hero just does the thing that's right there in the base that you know destroys everything. So you know, maybe that's his plan. Oh, that's true. He's like hoping that Mount Doom is where the prisoners are kept. <laughs> Like it's we, right next to Barad-Dur, so yeah. We're just going to keep you in one of our lava cages. One of the things we don't get in the movie that we get and that's in the book is Frodo and Sam pretending to be orcs. Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. With musical accompaniment in some version. Yes, in the in the uh, the Rankin Bass Return of the King. Um, yeah, yeah. Where there's a whip, there's a way. Yep. That whole bit. Yeah, it seems like orcs and Ents both are very easily convinced that hobbits are orcs. <laughs> yes. Yeah, they're not sure. They just don't know what hobbits are, so they just start checking things off the list, and it's just like, well, it must be an orc. Yeah, because I guess orcs are so diverse, you know, so that you can't, like, definitively say something isn't an orc unless you know specifically what it is. I mean, I have a very soft spot in my heart for Rankin-Bass animation in general and their take on Lord of the Rings in specific, but boy, did Frodo and Sam make some bad, bad bad-looking orcs in that movie. (laughs) Yeah, it's... I mean, I'm sure they did in the book too. It just how how <laughs> how is this even possibly convincing? It's just the fact that Rankin Bass does its orcs as you know these fire plug things that are six feet wide and one foot tall, and, and they're it's scaly, just, <laughs> scaly and gray and have tails and tusks. Kind of a lot of non-Hobbit characters characteristics. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm just so maybe that was Frodo's plan. He's just, I'm going to get in there and find some armor to put on. I, I guess. I just don't think it's very well thought out. No. Uh, Frodo's not a wise man. <laughs> well, in this moment, you've got Smeagol kind of being smart for both of them, and it, it's hilarious. Oh, that's my favorite moment in the movie, actually. Oh, man. Him tackling them. Uh, him, him pulling them both backwards. Yeah, you specifically, makes me laugh every you specifically time. requested, like, oh, when Gollum stops them from running ahead. I mean, it's up there with, like, Chris Hemsworth about to make the motorcycle jump in uh, Cabin in the Woods in, like, in terms of, like, a uh, defused heroic moment. It's so... It just makes me laugh because it's so... It's such a sudden moment when Gollum pulls them both backwards because, like, Sam is just ready to follow Frodo. He doesn't really know what's happening here, but he's just like, what are you going to do? And Frodo's like, I don't know. I'm going to go through the door. I'm just going to walk through the front door. And Sam's like, Like all right. All right, I would I would die for you. Let's do this. And Gollum is like, "What the hell are you two thinking?" <laughs> you, this is the moment where he reminds them that they are not in a slash fic. <laughs> what? <laughs> he pulls like, he no, pulls them right out of it. This is this is not the story you're in. No, I seriously. There's a moment there where Frodo says, "I don't ask you to come with me," and Sam says, "I know." And first of all, it's kind of echoing the Star Wars moment of, you know, "I love you." I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but second of all. They share a look at that moment that is like so, so single handedly responsible for like 10,000 slash fics. <laughs> it's just, it's this burning, soulful, like look of right. love. And, and then Smeagol comes along and grabs them both literally by the scruff of their necks. Right. And then <laughs> like the other idiots. And then the other million and a half slash fics are born from I can't carry it for you, Mr. Frodo. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's really true. But yeah, there's definitely, have you considered the impact that your little suicidal 
wonderful, you know, love moment is going to have on the entire rest of the world. Well, on the entire <laughs> me, rest me of the world. Me especially as Smeagol, yeah. but you know. <laughs> on the entire rest of the world, but mostly on me and my precious. Yeah. <laughs> he wants the precious, as if Frodo has forgotten this. And the look Frodo gives him is almost like, <laughs> is almost like he has forgotten this just for a moment. <laughs> it's like Fat Tony on The Simpsons. It's like, read the precious. <laughs> May I reiterate my wishing for the precious? My wife keeps asking me, where is the precious? Does Smeagol have the precious? Why do I? Why am I not wearing the precious? I think it's really interesting in this minute that Smeagol points out that the precious wants to go to Sauron as well. Yeah. Like, and, and that he doesn't want it to happen. It's just this interesting moment of, okay, he's not in a, a one-sided relationship with this ring. He's in an abusive relationship <laughs> with this ring. Yeah. This ring wants to go back to its ex, and I don't want it to. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. But, like, that just illustrates, like, how much more Gollum understands the ring than other characters do. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Because he spent a lot of time with it, just other, studying what it wants and yeah. saying, no, you can't have that. <laughs> yeah, because like other characters, Elrond, Gandalf, they kind of suppose that the ring wants to be found, that the ring is actively treacherous. But Gollum knows. Mm-hmm. Oh, Gollum sure, knows yeah. for sure what this thing is like. Yeah, because it happened to him. And he had it for 500 years. Mm-hmm. What dark thoughts did it whisper to him in... in the bowels of the Misty Mountains. You have all the crunchable birds birds as you want. Yeah, all the crunchable birds. Go back to the surface, Gollum. Visit beautiful Mordor. Well, it's like, it's 250 years of crunchable birds and 250 years of, I was thinking of getting back together with Sauron. What do you think about that? (laughs) No! But we had some good times, you know? Before things got bad. Before I got cut off. When we got together, I thought that you were... We got together. I thought I thought you were going to like go somewhere, not just hide in a hole for five hundred years. You know, it's like we never go anywhere anymore. How long has it been? Don't you want to visit your family? Strangle some more of them? Or it's like... Get found by some orcs? I don't know. Like, no. <laughs> yeah, probably every time an orc wandered down there, it'd be like, oh, this time, this time, then Gollum killed and ate it, and he's like, damn it. It's like, I wish I could just not turn this guy invisible. I I kind of I kind of want um like a spoof sketch about like the Ring's diary like day five hundred and twenty seven. It's like day fifteen thousand. Yeah. <laughs> Still not, Still on not king. Because yeah. <laughs> ostensibly that's Sauron's diary. It's just yeah, that's, it's yeah, that's true. Well, day, I I would argue day twenty four thousand. I'm ring, still stuck in a hole. Well, the ring the ring has been separated from Sauron so for so long at this point. I would argue that it is its own entity. Yeah, but it's it's part of him. Right. Yeah. That's it wants true. to. Although I mean, in the book, it's a little more distinct because it seems like he's afraid. Like Sauron, like he knows that if one of the good guys puts on the ring, that that's going to be bad for good guys. But that, he doesn't know that that's going to be good for him necessarily. You know, mm-hmm. it's like you know. He, He's afraid that somebody else is going to get corrupted by it and become the new, the new Dark Lord. You know, like uh, Galadriel talks about. Like if Saruman finds it, that's like you know bad news for for Saruman and for good people, but it's also probably bad news for Sauron. Right, because Saruman is of the same kind of being as Sauron. If anyone, if anyone else can tame the power of the Ring, it's another Maiar. Oh shoot! Yeah. 
Yep. I mean, there are a lot of little conf conflicts going on, I think, in Smeagol here. And it's it's fascinating to me. I always thought the back and forth between Smeagol and Gollum, when they're literally two people, was just kind of overplaying the hand on that idea. That it was just, it was too much, it was too overstated. I love the sequences like this, where you can see him flashing back and forth between them. Mm -hmm. I, I do really love that moment a lot, where he, he starts talking about Mordor and thinking he wants the precious, it wants to be found and then he gets really close to that rock and he says, we can't let that happen mm -hmm. and then he <laughs> goes from Smeagol to Gollum and then he goes back to Smeagol to again tell them like, no, we can't do that. I like I like the both the vocal cue and the visual cue because his face, like the expression on his face changes so drastically when he's in like Gollum's and personality. He, and he moves into like a shadowed space of yeah. the screen. Yeah. And it's just the shape of his eyes. You can see the shape of his eyes change every time he goes a little gollum. Yeah, they kind of fall a little. Yeah. Smeagol's eyes are more open and, and bright and active, and Gollum's eyes are scheming. <laughs> and Smeagol is always scared. Like, he's, he's desperate. He's desperate that the master that he's kind of coming to like is going to get killed. He's desperate that the ring is going to fall into the wrong hands. He's desperate that he's going to get killed by any number of soldiers or goblins or whatever. But Gollum is just all scheming. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Smeagol's like arrested in childhood or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense given, like, the trauma he experienced. He was a young hobbit. Sure. Or a young, a young steward. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, he was tortured in Mordor, like, recently. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, guys, just a second. <laughs> the That's more fine. you say tortured, the more our, the more noise our cats make. We are not actually torturing the cats for sound effect purposes <laughs> at this time. No animals are harmed in the making of this podcast. <laughs> I hope not. But I, I love Smeagol just being like, there's, there's another way. A dark way. <laughs> a hidden way. And Sam's, why didn't you tell us about this before? Exactly. Why why wait till right at this exact I'm, moment? I'm so sad this minute ends where it does because I love his answer. Oh, the first line of oh, the yeah. next minute is is just quintessential sass. It's just it's so oh, yeah. I have a lot to say about that, which I assume we're gonna save till tomorrow. It's so sassy. <laughs> I love it. I love like Smeagol is always like so scared and like desperate, but he also has this really, like, matter-of-fact, sarcastic edge to everything that goes on around him. Well, I mean, I, I, he's also very straightforward. Like, he, Yeah. He, but it just comes off as, like, him intentionally being this way. I think that might be a little bit of Gollum. Maybe. There's just the tiniest bit of Yoda in him. I mean, there's just that same sort of, like, smart-ass, you know, when 900 years you are... Oh, when 900 years old you are, you know, you're also going to sass the hobbits that won't give you the damn precious and go home. <laughs> right? I mean, and Gollum's body's in way better shape than Yoda's was. That's true. He doesn't need a walk. But he's only 500 years old, not nine. <laughs> well, I mean, they're both shriveled little green-gray things. Yeah. I, Yoda I, could still take him. I'm, I'm not about um, Gollum in daylight, I'm finding. Uh, Gollum looks way better in the nighttime. Yeah. Mm. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he looks weirdly flat. In the faraway shots, the close-ups mm. in this moment for me don't really look very good. But like that moment where he shifts from Smeagol to Gollum and like leans into the rock, that looks pretty good. Yeah. I 
again because he's in shadow. But he's <laughs> he's a little darker, so he looks. You know, you don't have to worry so much about some of the details, or his his edges aren't as defined. That's the big problem with Gollum in the daylight, is you can really see his edges of the animation. Mm. With you know the thing that makes blue screen stick out, like when Sam when that rock falls with Sam, that is as glaring to me as the stair scene with Frodo. I, I know immediately that that's blue well, blue screen right before it happens. I think it passes a little. It, it passes quicker than the stairs. Right. I mean, but Sam I'm, is like falling away and we don't see his descent. Yeah. But I'm starting to notice these things so much more deeply because we're doing this one minute at a time. Right. <laughs> yeah, ever- a lot of this stuff I don't think was meant to be seen like over and over and over with, with intense focus. Right. And I have the same issue looking at Smeagol's body like at the moment where he pulls the two hobbits back and then he sort of tumbles back a little and then sits back up he does look very flat like he's in full broad daylight there's no shadows and he looks kind of unconvincing but that said going back and watching that over and over I am always surprised at how well integrated the effect is with physical objects Mm. when you know when he's grabbing Elijah Wood's arm or touching his cloak or whatever that is some of the best integration of Gollum like interact with a physical thing in the whole trilogy. Oh, like when, he's when he's pulling on the cloak. Because <laughs> he's not he's not pawing for the ring, which is what you might expect Gollum to be doing. Mm-hmm. Because he's Smeagol and he's worried about the ring and he's worried about Frodo doing something stupid. I think that just leads more into like my thing so far where Smeagol has real empathy for Frodo. But right. Gollum doesn't. Yeah, Gollum doesn't care. But Smeagol, after that moment, <laughs> like, after after the Dead Marshes, especially, and, like, and then the conversation at night where he's renamed by Frodo, after that moment, like, Smeagol has real empathy for Frodo. Yeah. Our precious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a very important distinction. It's a line in the sand for Gollum's character development. I mean, that's one of the things I like about this whole sequence. There's not as much going on in this minute as in the last one, except in Smeagol's head. There's just, I think there's a really complicated and interesting back and forth that goes on in his character, exactly why he's acting the way he is in any given second. Yeah. Like, literally, it comes down to seconds. Well, he's really, I mean, he's just a really well-put character to be, like, their guide, you know, because he, you know, he's so on so many levels, you know, has already been where they're going, sort of thing. You know, you know, he's carried the ring, you know, you know, so Frodo so he's sort of a, a look at what Frodo might look like if he carried the ring for that long. He's been to Mordor already, so he's you know, and all the torture he suffered might is what they might suffer if they go to Mordor. And so it just works really well thematically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's important that even Smeagol himself, I don't think, doesn't know in from second to second whether he's acting out of self-preservation or as a ploy to try to get the ring or to protect Frodo. He just he he acts so much on instinct. And it's like the distinction between why he's doing something only really comes up when he tries to articulate it to somebody else. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Because I've always viewed Smeagol and Gollum as like uh, in some ways, kind of like Gollum is the id, but like Smeagol and Gollum are like a positive and a negative aspect of that. Smeagol is more like exploratory mm. and childlike, and Gollum is more like impulsive and cruel. Yeah. So they're like two, 
So they're I like think two that sides. Actually of works. I think I'd always sort of thought of it like in uh, I think it's in multiple personality disorder where you have sort of the protector personality and the innocent personality, you know, and that so Gollum at least thinks of himself as, you know, I'm the one who's kept us alive all these years, you know, sort of thing. So, you know, not just cruel for cruel's yeah. sake, but you know, in order to protect Smeagol. Right, that's how you justify it, and then eventually it just becomes part There's of your nature. There's sad going on here so with him, and and part of it is just when you, just after he's pulled them back and he's trying to explain himself, you get that extreme close-up on his face, and his face is so, like, open and hurting and scared, and he looks so desperate, and at the same time, I'm just looking at him going, oh my god, you are such an ugly thing. <laughs> You know, his the horrible little gap teeth and the weirdly wet lips and the giant bloodshot dripping eyes and like the horrible stringy hair. Like every time you spend time close up in with him, it's hard to forget just what a grotesque creature he is. Because I feel like a lot of this this movie um, paints like mm-hmm. Spiegel in particular as kind of adorable, but when we do like dwell on his like physical aspects it's just like oh but you're like a a weird slimy kind of adorable right like some moments he looks kind of gross when we get close to him but then like sometimes he just looks really cute like i think i've always thought he looks really adorable when he brings sam the rabbits yeah but that's gross but he's it's like a cute little animal hunting for you like it's kind of adorable because the the snaggle teeth in a wide variety of colors there's no way to make that cute (laughs) i don't know i also (laughs) think he's kind of adorable at the end of the the back and forth scene too when he like sighs that big he has that big sigh of relief Mm. and he kind of smiles to himself i always think he's kind of adorable there too Oh, when he like vanishes. When he ex- exercises Gollum from him- himself, however briefly it really lasts. We will talk. <laughs> we will. We will talk a lot about that. <laughs> we will. We will talk a I'm lot about that. I'm excited for that. But like, like that's the most widely iconic scene from this movie. I think for people, hmm. like that's the scene that's really like stayed in the public consciousness. Oh, Smeagol versus Gollum. Yeah, the the back and forth like conversation with himself thing because that's been that's been mimicked in everything yeah that's true i always feel so bad for Gollum whenever we talk about him <laughs> smeagol is like the truly tragic character of this story uh, no yeah. i think he i think he earns everything that comes to him one way or the other right up until his final moment he's he's literally earning what what comes to him i mean i there's i think there's certainly a debate to be had there about how much of the ring's influence can we really like you know, not forgive Gollum. It's true because he didn't have anybody to warn him. I'm sorry. Like I was gonna say, like the ring didn't murder his cousin, like he did. Right, but like, did the ring? How much? How much of the ring's influence caused him to do that? Yeah, but he. That's like, like the question. Saw it. But I mean, there was nobody to warn him, yeah, like what the it. ring would do. You know, whereas you know, everybody else who we see, like you know, uh, Boromir and people like that, you know, are all told, "Oh, the ring is evil, and it's you know going to make you do evil things." You know, and don't be evil, and yet you know, he's evil. He does you know a bad thing anyway. And, you know, it's implied that, like, you know, if Aragorn, if Frodo had stuck with Aragorn, it would eventually have worked on him, too. Yeah. In the context of the movie, Aragorn, Aragorn and Sam are the only other two people that, like, Aragorn doesn't even really touch the ring, but it comes real close because he closes it in Frodo's hand. That's true. But well, Sam, Sam touches the ring and it doesn't corrupt him. Yeah. <laughs> He's, Sam, Sam is exceptional <laughs> in every way. He also doesn't have that much time with it. I mean, Smeagol was kind of a pushover. 
Yeah, that's true. I mean, especially in the movie. I seem yeah. to remember as Bob and I having a huge argument over whether uh, Smeagol was evil. <laughs> or whether, was it whether Smeagol was evil or whether Gollum was evil? <laughs> I don't know. Because I think that's what it came down to. Was I, I? To me, they're not really two people. And the film, that's, that's why I don't really like the idea of the film splitting them into two people who speak to each other. That's why I think it's too literal. Like... I think that simplifies the nature of evil into a weirdly cartoony idea that's not that far off from, like, a little devil and a little angel sitting on your shoulder. But, I mean, evil is, like, embodied in a ring, basically, you know? <laughs> it's, I mean, it's even more defined is, than that. That's what fantasy does, you know? The ring is a form of evil. It's part of evil. It's a created evil thing, but it's not, like, all of the evil in this world. I mean, pretty much all the evil in this world is traceable to it, you know, like in, in the movie version, especially. Pretty much all the evil in Middle Earth right. is traceable to, Mar to to Morgoth. All the evil in Middle Earth is traceable back to to Morgoth's conquering of ancient Middle Earth. Yeah. And Sauron is just what's left over of Morgoth. Take it back to Melkor's movie singing. Empire. Know, singing. Even the <laughs> right. Even the men of uh, even the men of Harad and and Rune were followers of Melkor. I don't know. I mean, I think at the point where you're looking back, like, ages and ages ago for the source of evil, you're getting into a very Calvinistic predetermination thing where the decisions individual people make don't matter. Mm -hmm. And I think we see Smeagol making individual decisions throughout this entire week of minutes. I think we may see him making a decision here in this minute that is relevant and, and important. Yeah. I... Because the, the whole, like, good versus evil thing, like, Tolkien tends to paint it in very stark, like, black and white. So there isn't, like, a whole lot of gray area. <laughs> There's Gandalf yeah. the gray area. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just had to say but it. But Gandalf, like, Gandalf, Gandalf has the mantle of the gray, but he is very starkly, like, he is a good, like, a good person with a capital G. G is for yeah. Gandalf, G is for good. So... And Glorfindel. <laughs> yes. Um... <laughs> Not in any of the movies. I would argue that. I mean, we haven't met Faramir yet, and I know movie Faramir bothers you quite a bit, yes. Norman. Um, but I like movie Faramir for the same reason that I like movie Boromir, or have grown to like movie Boromir, and that the the realm of men, like with a capital M, paint like portrays this kind of gray, like moral gray area. Mm. Where, like, Faramir's actions are, like, cruel, and one could call them evil because they're, like, very self-serving. Right. Very, um, I don't know, just... just... And Faramir's uh, comments on the dead soldier also very much illustrate that. Yes. Um, so... It's true. I don't know, I like... Although that was originally a Frodo internal thing, I think. Yeah. I, I think it is too, yeah. Like that whole speech. But they gave those lines openly to Faramir as like a way to to kind of paint him as someone that we should potentially root for. Like there's obviously good in this guy because he kind of cares mm -hmm. about the past of the enemy he's fighting. Mm -hmm. It's something that weighs on him. I, I, I'm not into the this is this is good and this is evil. Right. Whereas like Book, the book versions of Faramir and, and Aragorn oh, yeah, like Faramir are very is, much is like, like no we are good and pure precious angel yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which you know it serves its purpose it depends on the meat like the media that you're yeah because it's easier to pull that off in a book yeah than it is in a movie 
And yet nobody notices that Grandma worm tongue. Right, yeah. Like, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, yeah, when you make everything evil, like, literally slimy and dripping with giant baggy pouches under its eyes, <laughs> it, it becomes a little harder right? to miss. Like, <laughs> again, everybody in this movie fails right? the perception. That's, that's uh, why I like, I like Saruman, because Saruman is dressed... Right, because yeah. he's the white yeah. hat, and yet he's bad. Oh, I love it when the evil when the evil wears white. That's like, that's a, that's a thing that you don't see a lot but is kind of tropey that I love mm. uh, the devil in Constantine wears white which I've always loved <laughs> he, he's like wearing a white suit and there's like this black ichor dripping out of the cuffs of his pants and the sleeves of his suit coat yeah exactly he's like tracking mud everywhere and I've always loved that I just think that's a really cool visual make the bad guy wear white yeah cause why not why would he dress evil it's amazing how often when they wear white it's like it's a suit it's a white suit yeah right just something natty. Yeah, like sometimes you're watching something and like, I'm going to say anime because I watch anime. Um, sometimes like you're, sometimes in like an anime, you get introduced to all these characters and it's just like, there's normal clothes and like some people are dressed kind of fancy. And then this guy in the back of the frame is in a white suit and he's just kind of there. And it's just like, that's a bad guy. <laughs> that's not a good guy. Is, is evil wearing white a... A, an Eastern storytelling trope? Actually, I think kind of, yeah. Like the because um, because rep- white represents death. Okay. Uh, black, black and white kind of have opposite meanings. Like black is considered kind of a more positive color in a lot of Eastern storytelling and like Eastern legends like and stuff. Yeah, and like philosophy. That's cool. Like uh, like yin and yang. Yeah. Because I think Yang is the creative force and Yin is the destructive force, but I'm not 100% positive. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> I love the automatic disclaimer. <laughs> it's a, it's, it's a good instinct. Because I've read lots of random stuff, and sometimes it's hard to keep it straight in my head. Legit. Yeah, I think uh, we're, we're way, we're we're way off here. So <laughs> thanks for joining us today, guys. Oh, it was great. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having us. If anyone is interested in some other dueling genre productions, you can check out Immunities, which Bob has been a part of. Yeah, they're in the middle of their second season right now. Yep. There's also Countdown to Infinity, leading up to the release of Infinity War. They're reviewing one Marvel Cinematic Universe movie at a time. Yeah, that's fun. There's also The Protagonist Podcast and Geek by Night, another audio drama on the website. That I help write. That Cassandra helps write. And Doctor's Companion, which Cassandra hosts. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's a great podcast. That, that podcast is so much fun. Though, oh, though. thanks. Yeah. I've loved every episode I've listened to. I don't know if there's like a large crossover audience for Doctor Who and Lord of the Rings, but uh, if you're out there and haven't listened to them yet. I mean, it might be more of one now that we're, we share a website. Yeah, that's true. I think there was a time when you would assume that anybody who liked one of those liked the other one, but that was before like nerdery took over the entire yeah. world. And it separated <laughs> into like subgroups. Yeah. Yeah, sub nerds, exactly. sub nerds, because <laughs> like there's geeks and nerds and dorks, <laughs> dweebs. dweebs, weebs. Wow. Oh man, I hate dweebs. <laughs> <laughs> Us geeks really can't hate, can't stand dweebs at all. Well, everyone have a good Tuesday. Back tomorrow. Bye. Bye. Bye.
camera.